G'day and welcome to episode 20 of The Other Side Australia. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly shortcut to Australia's best commentary. Now on video as well as audio podcast, we're on the discernible platform. This is the show that takes a look at the news of the week that matters from a classical liberal centre-right perspective. That's a perspective that I think is disturbingly missing from the Australian mainstream media these days. On this week's show, the president speaks. No, not that one. China's scariest president since Chairman Mao, Xi Jinping, has a warning for the rest of the world. Meanwhile, a prominent Aussie senator and war hero says we're already in conflict with China. We'll also hear from two of Australia's most liberal-minded Aboriginal leaders about the real solution to the social and economic problems facing Australia's Indigenous community. And I'll give my thoughts on why it's so important that we keep Australia Day sacred no matter the date on which we celebrate it. We'll be talking about Marxism and we'll hear from one of Scotland's funniest and most politically incorrect comedians. Let's go. We'll get to Australia Day in a moment, but first, the most important news of the week that the mainstream media hasn't said enough about, but you really need to know about. Australian Liberal Senator Jim Molan says Australia and the West are already in conflict with China in what is called grey zone conflict. And he says all out war is much more likely than people are talking about. During his distinguished military career, Major General Molan served as the chief of operations for the entire multinational force in Iraq, and he's been awarded the Legion of Merit by the US government. Chinese warplanes carried out a big incursion on Taiwan airspace this week, flying 30 nuclear war bombers over the island nation. Senator Molan told Sky News' Chris Smith that these are acts of war, in his view. China has ratcheted up its military displays of might as a direct challenge to the new US President, Joe Biden. They have ratcheted it up. There's no two ways about it. They're, they're putting a bit of pressure on President Biden, and this was expected. Everyone's predicted that this was going to occur. The big question is how far are they going to push it? And they didn't have to pass that, that legislation which not only allowed them to, to, to uh, use the weaponry and allow, uh, of, of their Coast Guard and their militia, but it, it allowed them to, to do a, a large number of other things uh, that were, in my view, acts of war, and, uh, particularly as it's applied to something such as the South China Sea, mm. which is not internationally recognised as, as uh, uh, Chinese territory. And, of course, uh, we had uh, about... 12 or 13 aircraft which flew through the air, the ADIZ, the Air Defence Identification Zone of Taiwan, crossed the midline on Saturday. And guess what happened on Sunday? They did it again with a larger number of aircraft. Right. Uh, the, the United States has deployed a carrier battle group into the South China Sea. I don't think it'll go near Taiwan. They, they'll have, they've admitted that they've got nuclear submarines which will sit in the vicinity of Taiwan as the first reaction. So I don't think the carrier battle group will go there. The problem is, Chris, that that war, and we're in conflict now. People seem to accept the fact that we're in conflict with China. Mm. What it's called is grey is grey zone conflict. The probability uh, of war, uh, I, 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 I think it is it is uh, it's not just uh, possible because, it, and it is possible because people are armed to the teeth. And we're seeing that right this very second. Yeah. But it's much more likely than most people are talking about. 
Now, I don't mind us not talking about it as long as behind the scenes we are trying to overcome the enormous vulnerabilities that COVID has shown us and that an intelligence approach to national security would show us. And that was Senator Jim Molan speaking to Chris Smith on Sky News this week. Just hours before we recorded this week's episode, Chinese President Xi Jinping made a speech at the World Economic Forum, the WEF, remember them? The Australian newspaper says it's his most significant speech on foreign policy since Joe Biden's election. In what one Singaporean foreign policy expert has described a speech thick with irony, President Xi has declared the strong should not bully the weak. To build small circles or start a new Cold War, to reject, threaten or intimidate others and to create isolation or estrangement will only push the world into division and even confrontation, he said. Did you catch that last bit? And even confrontation. The Australian says she is positioning himself as the defender of the multilateral system. President Xi even called for reforms of the World Trade Organization. Now, this would be the organization whose rules China doesn't seem to want to follow, even though the country was admitted only on the condition that it does follow the rules. We then got the usual hypocritical PR spin from Beijing about how China would continue to promote a new type of international relations and is working hard to bridge differences through dialogue and resolve disputes through negotiation and to pursue friendly and cooperative relations with other countries on the basis of mutual respect, equality and mutual benefit. Gee, can you hear the nuclear bombers flying over Taiwan? In case you missed it, in a clear message of, if you behave yourself, you'll get nice things like the little girl next door, Johnny. Beijing has just signed off on an expanded trade deal with New Zealand. What a surprise. Well, Bilhari Korsakan is a former Singapore Foreign Affairs Ministry Secretary, and he's one of the top policy thinkers in Asia Pacific. He's told the Australian that Mr. Xi's speech was overflowing with irony, but he said, you know, they don't care what they say. The line about to build small circles and start a new Cold War, in Xi's speech, shows that Beijing is worried, according to Mr. Korsakan, worried about the emerging coalition of different countries that are getting more and more concerned about China's behavior in re recent years. A coalition against China, which he says has been created much more by Beijing's doing than by anyone else. What China's most worried about is the Quad, the informal arrangement between the US, Japan, India, and Australia, which in November held its first joint military exercises since 2007. President Biden's spokeswoman said that Xi's speech at the World Economic Forum virtual meeting changes absolutely nothing about the president's intended China strategy. We believe this moment requires a strategic and a new approach forward, she said. We'll see what that turns out to be in coming months, no doubt. Now, I know many of the people marching in the street on Australia Day meant well. And I know COVID risk magically disappears when there's a trendy identity politics related issue to be marching about. Hey, Dan Andrews, not too worried about this crowd, were you? No. But these guys and gals and others are misguided and their marching isn't the slightest bit virtuous. Celebrating a national day is a very important thing. Taking a day out to give thanks 
and reflect upon what makes Australia great is critical to ensuring that we don't just focus on the negatives all the time. At the very least, it's good for your mental health. To quote my old friend EJ on Facebook this week, I don't care what day we celebrate Australia Day, so long as we actually celebrate it. A nation can't survive without respect for its own core culture and sense of nationhood. As Australians, we enjoy Western culture, specifically the modern British version. It's easy to forget that when you live so far away from other countries. This law and order and peace and civility that we live with every day didn't just happen by accident. As I often say, this is not the default for planet Earth. Game of Thrones is the default for planet Earth. What we live every day in this country is a rare and wonderful miracle. Other people come to Australia for our culture of liberty, democracy and opportunity. So in some ways to not celebrate Australia is Australia Day is the stance of a spoiled brat. January 26 was the day that Captain Arthur Phillip took formal possession of the colony of New South Wales and raised the British flag for the first time in Sydney Cove. He first landed in Australia between January 18 and 20 in Botany Bay, but they couldn't find any fresh water there, so they sailed into Sydney Cove on the 26th. It kind of was the first act that led to the modern Australian nation in a sense. We probably should move the date to January the 1st when the nation was really founded when Federation kicked in in 1901, but we'd lose a public holiday and we'd all be too tired from New Year's Eve celebrations for another party. Now, this nation that we enjoy today, with its British rule of law, Westminster system of parliament, and Judeo-Christian-based Western European ideas of freedom and liberty, is a result of a 230-year-old complex history of peoples from all over the world, almost all of whom have an ancestral tale of tyranny and injustice, including the convicts who landed in Sydney Cove on January 26, 1788. The point is that very few of us here, now, alive today, were born more than 100 years ago and know any kind of true injustice, including modern Aboriginal Australians. We are all among the most privileged people on this planet. If you were born in this land, you are Indigenous to it. If you've come as a new citizen and you love this land, you're equal to all your fellow citizens. Vast resources have been channeled for Aboriginal Australians for 50 plus years. Discriminatory laws have been done away with for all of my lifetime, and I'm no spring chicken. It is not the responsibility for modern, of modern 21st century non-Aboriginal Australians to fix all the problems of modern 21st century Aboriginal Australians. What we're witnessing is a victim industry that's out of control, amid a culture of profoundly illogical and irrational virtue signalling over every little thing. And we're seeing neo-Marxists like the Greens and BLM, because that's what they are, using this issue like they use so many others to sow division and discontent in our society. Do you think that if Japan had been victorious in 1945, that Aboriginal Australians would be better off? Do you think if China invades us this century, not such a far-fetched notion anymore, that their government will bestow the preferential spending on Aboriginal affairs that Western European democratic liberalism has? Huh. Here are some actual facts. The Productivity Commission says in 2015-16, total direct government expenditure on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians was estimated to be $33.4 billion. The estimated expenditure per person was $44,886 for Indigenous Australians, around twice that as for non-Indigenous Australians at $22,000. 
Now, 64% of that difference, almost two thirds of it, can be attributed to greater intensity of service use, higher use of the services available to all Australians, like unemployment benefit, Medicare benefits. Around 18% is attributable to the higher cost of providing services, mainly because of more remote locations. And the last 18% represents targeted services, those specifically only for Indigenous Australians. Slightly more than half of all the funding comes from the states, while the rest comes from the federal government. Put simply, Australia is already very generous to its Indigenous peoples, as you'd expect, because Australians are nice people and we like our Aboriginal community. Very few people complain too much about it because everyone recognises the problems and the need. Compare us to ultra-woke Canada, which has twice as many First Nations people and spends significantly less than we do. Is there discrimination in Australia? Yes, positive discrimination in favour of the 850,000 Indigenous Aussies. 22,000 worth of government spending on non-Indigenous Aussies, 44,000 on every Indigenous Australian. The nonsense and the marching in the streets is insane. It's people who don't have a clue what they're marching about, organised by good old neo-Marxists who jump on any populist bandwagon they can to sow division. And it's simply got to stop for the benefit of Aboriginal Australians and the unity of our nation. The development and so-called invasion of modern Australia was inevitable. History is bloody and unjust. What matters is today. And today, Aboriginal Australians, like all Aussies, are among 25 million of the luckiest people on earth. We must have a day where we celebrate that and do so gratefully, humbly, respectfully, and without using the day to complain. And while some Aussies spend Australia Day bucketing our country in their perpetual orgy of self-virtuous complaint, tens of thousands of Australians still remain stranded around the world. And these are the ones who want to come home for good. The hard-working expats who just want to come home for a visit number tens of thousands more in London, New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, and dozens of other cities around the world to which Australian, Australia exports its executive and specialist talent. It's a significant part of our economy, but the deal is if you're an Aussie citizen, you're supposed to be able to come home and go from home as you please. And while a pandemic might be a good reason to slow down international travel, this can't go on forever. And those wanting to quarantine and pay their own way cannot be denied entry into their own country. As for exiting, Australia continues to require we get the government's permission to leave. I still can't believe I'm saying that. And that most people are fine with it. I think North Korea and Cuba are the only other places on earth where that's the case. You know, while we're still a democracy, we can choose how much power we give to government. You do remember that, right? Freedom isn't something government gives us. It's something government takes from us because... We let it. Government doesn't have an inherent right to stop you going anywhere. We have certain unalienable, God-given rights as human beings. We need to remember that when we decide to permit government certain extra rights in a pandemic. And so do our governments. It was nice to see UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson taking time out on Australia Day to remember the hundreds of thousands of citizens of both our nations that have been separated by covid G'day everybody and happy Australia Day to our Australian kith and kin, uh, our friends, family uh, here in the UK and Australians around the world. For two nations that are geographically so far apart, the UK and Australia have long been extraordinarily close. We share so much in our language, our history, our culture. This closeness 
means that the enforced separation we've had to endure in 2020 has been felt all the more keenly. And while that's, I'm afraid, likely to go on for a while, the new year brings with it new opportunities to share what makes both our nations so special. Some of the very best bits of our own national gallery are already winding their way to Canberra for the Botticelli to Van Gogh exhibition, and later in the year our cricketers will undertake a similar journey as they set off to reclaim the ashes. And in between, we shall further explore our friendly rivalry at the Tokyo Olympics. I know that Olympic Games in the past have seen UK sports ministers engage in something of a wager with their Australian counterparts over which country will come out on top in the medal table. I'm not sure, Scott, uh, whether there's ever been a uh, bet between prime ministers, but if you do want to discuss terms, you know where to find me. In fact, Scott, I'm looking forward to seeing you very much this year in Cornwall, when I'm going to welcome you to the, uh, the G7 and hopefully also to the COP26 in Glasgow as well. And of course, 2021 is going to be the year in which we work together, UK, Australia, to deliver that world-class free trade deal we all want to see, a deal that will make sure that uh, we bring Arnott's shapes to Shetland, Vegemite-flavoured shapes, and sell even more British barbecues uh, to Brisbane and deliver greater prosperity to both our, our peoples. If you're an Australian celebrating today, have a great time. And if you're British... Let's take a moment to celebrate the lucky country and raise a tinny to Australia and all her people. That was UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. On January 26, the American PragerU conservative educational website posted a new video from one of my favourite social critics, Douglas Murray, the author of the brilliant book, The Madness of Crowds. It couldn't have been more timely. The video is entitled what kind of future do we have if we destroy our past? President Biden this week had a bust of Winston Churchill removed from the Oval Office in a bizarre act of woke virtue signaling. Here's Douglas Murray. What kind of future do we have if we destroy our past? Has anyone who has pulled down a statue of Churchill, Lincoln or Columbus thought to ask themselves this question? I doubt it. The presumption that we can stand in perfect judgment over the lives of historical figures is not merely foolish and unfair, it's dangerous. Consider what the statue destroyers are in effect saying. They are saying that people in history should have known what we know. That's tantamount to saying they should have known the future. This is, of course, absurd. Yet more and more people believe it. Why? Simple. It's what they're taught. It is the fruit of an education system that long ago prioritised empathy over facts, that believes the ultimate point of history is not to learn lessons from it, but to judge it from the preordained left-wing conclusions about such ill-defined concepts as social justice, equity and tolerance. Apart from breeding ignorance, this kind of education invites the student, the child really, to be judge, jury and executioner over issues that they, and increasingly their teachers, know little or nothing about. Because no one has bothered to teach them the nuance, complexity and context that is history. It also breeds arrogance. 
I know things these people did not know, therefore I am better than they were, they have nothing to teach me, in fact I must teach them, and down comes the statue. Indeed. Perhaps it's time that we let our children be children and return to the tradition of teaching them to have respect for their elders, heaven forbid. That was Douglas Murray in this week's PragerU five-minute video. Make sure you catch that one. The link is in the program notes. Like most Australians, I care about the issues affecting our Aboriginal communities, the real issues. What really matters is the health and well-being of modern Aboriginal Australians. What really matters are the social problems of violence and substance abuse in communities that must be solved. What really matters are the high rates of crime and, as a result, the correspondingly high rates of incarceration. Aboriginal culture is rich and mysterious and a wonderful part of our national fabric. But even a culture as strong as traditional Aboriginal culture cannot survive disconnected from the modern world or disconnected from the realities of a global economy. Nor can it survive clinging to injustice of the past. Almost all Aussies have some kind of horrible injustice in our ancestral past. It's over. There are few nations on earth where people are as interested and supportive of their so-called first peoples as Australia. The goodwill towards Aborigines among most Australians is as high as you could get. And cries of racism from the left are just absurd, divisive nonsense. Racism is not the cause of the problems facing Aboriginal Australians. The solution to the problems have not come, and will never come, from the policies of detached bureaucrats who've been educated in line with the doctrine of identity politics victimhood. They won't come from the woke virtue signalling of the inner city children running amok inside their ABC. Nor will it come from the well-meaning bureaucrats at Cricket Australia who think BLM is just a friendly anti-racism movement. It's not. It's a neo-Marxist organisation using race to help bring about their beloved revolution. Look it up. No, the solutions will only come in the same way that any other society on the planet has ever been built. From within. With hard work and intelligent leadership leading to meaningful lives that are economically productive and spiritually uplifting. How about we listen to what two of Australia's leading Aboriginal thinkers have to say? Last August, the Alice Springs counsellor and cross-cultural consultant, Jacinta Nemjimpa Price, interviewed an Aboriginal leader and politician, Nyongai Warren Mundine, for the Centre for Independent Studies podcast on liberty. The Centre for Independent Studies is a liberal think tank based in Sydney. Ms Price is the Centre's Indigenous Program Director, and Mr Mundine wrote a paper for them called It's the Economy, Stupid. Economic Participation is the Only Way to Close the Gap. One of the opening points you make with regard to your paper is that conditions must exist in communities that are necessary for private enterprise and commerce to thrive. You also go on to mention that the economic status of Indigenous Australians is not in fact addressed in the current Closing the Gap targets. So can you tell us a little bit about what this means for Indigenous Australians and certainly with regard to Closing the Gap? Well, what's been happening in the last, say, 20 years has been this shift in thinking uh, that, uh, you know, 
working through community organisations, working from, through government agencies and this top-down approach uh, hasn't been working. In fact, over 50 years of this, this policy area, there's been very little shift in the, uh, the prosperity of uh, Indigenous people in Australia. And so uh, they said, well, what's the missing element? And of course, the missing element uh, is economic development. There's no race or group of people in the history of humankind that's uh, actually lifted out of poverty, been able to get jobs, been able to have run businesses, to be able to get their kids educated and, and health services operating and that without having uh, an economy, without having a, a economic growth. It's, it's, it's not rocket science, it's just a fact of life. So that's when they made the shift in 2004 under the Howard government of looking at this area of saying, okay, we need to start focusing not just service providers, but actually how do we create the environment for investment? And so uh, it's only through that private sector of actually having businesses that are profitable and commercial that create the jobs. Another one of your concerns was around some of the draft targets being set, as uh, standalone targets. Um, that don't necessarily aim to reach parity with non-Indigenous Australia. As standalone targets, even if met, don't indicate how close we are to reaching parity. Can you elaborate further on this point? Well, the, the, the big issue is that uh, there's a couple of things there. When you're looking at governments and you're looking at community organisations, they only employ a certain amount of people. Then it, it is the private sector that employs the most people, especially in rural and remote areas something like 70 to 80 percent depending on the region is employed in small business that uh, 20 to 30 percent are actually employed by governments and that's where you've got this, this large unemployment pool that's happening out there when you look at those at uh, the priority areas it is all about bureaucracy and we've been doing that since about 1970 so that's 50 years and it hasn't worked and we wonder why you get this incredible unemployment levels and that. Uh, prior to the 1970s, most Aboriginals worked. It may surprise some people, but they did work. You know, mm -hmm. they worked in the cattle industry, they worked as shearers, they worked as fruit pickers, they worked in a wide range of jobs. And it cha all changed with the equal pay thing. Now, and I'm saying we shouldn't get equal pay. And all of a sudden we were out of work and, and the welfare system was able to access the welfare system. So we've had 50 years of of unemployment in some of these communities. And the only way to do that is to change it around and start showing opportunities for people. And that was Warren Mundine speaking to Jacinta Price on the On Liberty podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. It's a great interview. If you want to watch the whole hour discussion, the link is in our program notes, as is the link to Mr Mundine's paper. I woke up on Australia Day thinking the childishness and ingratitude of our public discourse couldn't get any worse. Only to read that Kerry O'Brien, one of the nation's most celebrated journalists, was rejecting his Order of Australia award. It should be an act of shame in the highest degree to reject or return a national honour. But it's not anymore. I guess it all fits perfectly. Old guy used to getting a lot of attention, maybe feeling a bit irrelevant, sees a way to grab the spotlight for a second. Like a baby in its cot, spitting out its dummy. Mate, if you're feeling old and irrelevant, do what the rest of us do. Start a podcast. 
Don't delude yourself that you've done anything noble or honourable by this virtue signalling publicity stunt, Kerry. You've only disgraced yourself and a quite good journalistic career. I expect a plethora of lefties awarded honours are now angstfully calling their friends, should I? Should I hand it back to? Secretly praying the friend says no and gives them some kind of excuse not to. Oh, what good would it do now? Kerry O'Brien's made the point on behalf of all of us, darling. No need for you to make the sacrifice too. Plus, there's no publicity in going second or third, is there? As one of my wittiest friends on Twitter, at Polybard, wrote shortly after Kerry's act of self-flagellation, Come on, Jane Caro, don't be a straggler. Time for our regular education segment. I said in an editorial earlier in this episode that neo-Marxists like the Greens and BLM are using the Australia Day issue like they use so many others to sow division and discontent in our society. We often forget that Marxists actually work to sow division actively and deliberately. China even has a national department for interfering in foreign affairs. They jump on causes, any cause, and they stir up as much trouble as possible. That's why there were Antifa people right in the front of the storming of the Capitol building in the US hanging out with the far right extremists. It's why Extinction Rebellion has infected the Green Movement and BLM has infected the anti-racism movement. There might only be a few crazy Marxists left in Australia wandering around West End, Fitzroy, Fremantle and Glebe, but that's all it takes to stir up quite a bit of division, along with a bit of a funding push from Beijing perhaps. Last time I seriously read a textbook on Marxism when I was forced to at about 18 was by university, of course. Even at that young age, I found the ideas on which Marxism is based to be as oversimplistic and nutty as you could get. But it's good to know thy enemy. So it was timely this week that Josh, my learned colleague here on the Discernible platform, put out the latest video in his Worldviews series, which is absolutely fantastic if you haven't checked it out. This week's video focused on, you guessed it, understanding Marxism. And Josh does an amazing job distilling the essence of Marx's intelligent sounding but utterly batty theories in his one hour program. It makes very good listening in the car if you don't have time to watch the video. I just wanna play you a bit on morality and ethics in which Josh explains that Marxists basically divide society into the proletariats and the bourgeoisie. Because, you know, all societies are that simple, right? Here's Josh. The proletariat are the working class, people who work. It's kind of an arbitrary definition. They're oppressed by the bourgeoisie. So the, the bourgeoisie are the people that own the means of production. And they use that advantage to exploit and alienate the proletariat. And so when I say proletariat, I mean the Marxist idea of who they are. They believe they're part of the proletariat, the, the oppressed group. And when I say bourgeoisie, I mean the people who are oppressing them. If I say bourgeois, it's like an office of someone who's oppressing them. So the president 
is part of the bourgeoisie, the person, the office, the office of president is a bourgeois office. So just to make it easier, I'm going to say the workers and the landowners. Okay, proletariat morality is the idea that the workers have been oppressed and so basically anything they do that moves towards the revolution is absolutely okay. If the workers treat the landowners uh, by killing them, if they steal, everything is okay if it's moving towards the revolution. For humanists, secular humanists, morality is about reducing conflict, right? For the Marxist, morality is actually about stirring it up. It's a big, big thing. So if you see um, a riot where, let's just say you see a protest and some people start to provoke a riot. Those people who are doing that are probably going to the protest with a Marxist idea of what they're doing. For a proletariat to, have not, to not have a big screen TV and for a bourgeoisie to have a big screen TV, that's inequality. So for the proletariat to steal a big screen TV is justice. They made it, or the, the working class were involved in making it, therefore they should own it. Basically ethics, anything that, anything, lying, cheating, stealing, killing, anything, that the working class do to bring about a revolution in the cause of the revolution is absolutely okay. This is Frederick Engels. Our cause is sacred. He whose hands will tremble, who will stop midway, whose knees shake before he destroys tens and hundreds of enemies, he will lead the revolution into danger. Whoever will spare a few lives of enemies will pay for it with hundreds and thousands of lives of the better sons of our fathers. And they did. In the 20th century, 100 million people were killed by their own Marxist governments. And today, we still think big government is a good idea. Apart from all the good classical liberalism brings to a country in terms of poverty alleviation and healthcare and longevity and proven benefit, free market liberalism would be worth embracing even just on the basis of what it prevents too much centralized power in government. How the garbage of Marxism and socialism persists is beyond me. I guess it's because they make it sound so nice. Government giving away free stuff, paid for taxing those greedy rich people. And if you're not one of the rich people, it is nice until the government turns nasty, which it always eventually does. Have a read of George Orwell's Animal Farm. That was Josh from Discernible doing a fantastic job of explaining the worldview 
of Marxism. Just one clip can't do the whole thing justice. So do make sure that you watch or listen to the whole hour and the whole Worldview series. In fact, it's great stuff. There's a great interview on the Candace Owens show uh, this week that you've got to check out with comedian Brian Callan. The two discussing the attack on free speech, the rush to take offence and its impact on comedy. One of the spaces that's definitely under attack is just being able to tell a joke, right? Yeah. And this used to be we needed comedians in the world because comedians actually bring us all closer together. We make they make fun of everyone. Yeah. And then you kind of realize, all right, all right, it's it's actually funny. We all kind of suck a little bit. You know, we all have our good things and bad things. And now we're suddenly in an era where comedians they're digging up tweets from twenty years ago. Uh, he he said this word and now he needs to be canceled. Yeah. Well art's always I think good art has always been something that disturbs, you know, especially satire. Satire was always something that rulers were terrified of, cartoonists. And, and you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of power in being able to point out the contradictions in human behavior. And all of us are a walking contradiction to an extent. But for the most part, what's great about being allowed to just speak your mind, it's called original self-expression. And if you feel like you're going to get in trouble, if you feel like your livelihood is going to be affected by speaking your mind, by who you're making fun of, I think we're all in trouble. Because stand-up is still the last, I really believe stand-up is the last bastion of free speech. I totally agree with you. Yeah, so, so it's incredibly important. Right. We need more of that because it just gets people to think. It, by the way, it also, it also gets you to kind of lower your guard. Mm. When, I, when a comedian makes fun of my positions, my political positions, my philosophical positions, just who I am as a person, I listen. I listen if it's if it's really good. Sometimes it's just too undeniable. Right. And you kind of go, man, I never thought about that when it comes to myself. And that's comedian Brian Callan on The Candace Owens Show this week. You can check out the full thing. It's great. And you know where to find the link. And that brings us to this week's comedy spot for absolute political incorrectness. Turn to no other than London's free-thinking comedy club, Comedy Unleashed, where the slogan is, no self-censorship. If it's funny, it's funny. Scottish comedian Leo Kurse is featured in one of Comedy Unleashed's YouTube clips. Here's a bit of Leo. Yeah, people slag off Donald Trump. They're like, oh my God, he's such a terrible person. He wants to put children in cages. Blah, 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 blah. Man, putting children in cages is a fantastic idea. <laughs> Don't just do it to refugee children coming over the border. Do it, do it to all children everywhere. Every pub in London should have a cage out the back and just fling these fucking rats in. All these little Gideons and Esmeraldas. Get them in there, have a pint in peace. Man, nobody's gonna knock over the Jenga. I agree with, with Donald Trump about the environment as well. Like, man, these environmentalists. I got talking to one of these Extinction Rebellion guys at a party, this vegan guy, and uh, when he finished telling me about veganism, he still had some energy left over. <laughs> He told me off because uh, I was using a plastic drinking straw. He said, that's bad. That is single-use plastic. I was like, what do you mean? He says, that's single-use plastic. After you've used that to drink your gin and tonic, it's going to go into the sea and kill a turtle. I said, well, then it's not single-use plastic. <laughs> I got talking to this guy, this Extinction Rebellion guy. He's a white guy with dreadlocks. You know the kind of guy. <laughs> 
And I asked him what the environmental issues coming up are. I'm not joking, this is what he said. He said the insects are dying out. I'm not joking, the insects. I was like, oh, no, not the insects. I mean, there's not going to be flies left to land in wet dog shit and then land on my chips. I'm not going to have to take my chips over the wet dog shit myself and tip them in. That sounds like a horrific inconvenience. that dystopian future for my children. <laughs> but yeah, he was telling me, he was telling me global warming, that's, that's a big thing, climate change, like apparently it's going to be devastating because temperatures are going to rise by 1.2 degrees over the next 100 years, which is going to be devastating for Scotland. <laughs> Some of us might have to undo the top button on a duffel coat. <laughs> said we're going to get more extreme weather as well. Like extreme weather in Britain. What are we going to get? Extreme drizzle. <laughs> I'm getting so gently moist, but it's slightly faster than it did a hundred years ago. I'm going to have to take the washing in eventually. <laughs> he also said sea levels are going to rise by six feet over the next hundred years, which is going to be devastating for people who can't walk uphill. <laughs> Really slowly. Who's so lazy they can't walk six feet up a beach in a hundred years? <laughs> it's going to be devastating for fat people is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Obviously the state of comedy in 2019, there's probably a Guardian journalist in the audience be like, oh my god, that is awful. Oh my god. <laughs> he actually thinks that fat people should live in the sea. Oh my god. <laughs> That's Scottish comedian Leo Kurse at the Comedy Unleashed Club in London. The full clip of that routine is on YouTube. We'll put the link below. But be warned, it's not safe for work or kids. We did a bit of editing on it. And that brings us to the end of this Australia Day week edition of The Other Side Australia. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. We're available on the discernible platforms, YouTube, Facebook, and the Good Source platform, and all good podcast platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at dcoury, C-O-O-R-Y. We'll see you next week.